What's going on, Renaissance? My name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here. So grateful that you have tuned in with us for our online service. Before we get started in today's message, I want to pray for us. So Heavenly Father, you turn ordinary moments into encounters with you. And all throughout scripture, you've spoken to women, you've spoken to men just in really ordinary times and really ordinary moments. And I pray that right now you would use this ordinary means to speak to us, to be an encounter with you. And we ask this in Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. So growing up, uh, I grew up at Shiloh Baptist Church right outside of Yonkers, and my parents were pretty involved. My mother was the church clerk, and every single Sunday she would read the announcements and all of the things happening for the week. And my dad was a deacon. Uh, he would sit in the front and turn around in church and angrily scowl at me and my brother to make sure we were paying attention. And at the end of the service, at the end of the sermon, he and another deacon would walk down the aisles and see if anyone, anybody wanted to give their life to God. So since my parents were pretty involved in the church, that meant that my brother and I had to be involved as well. So every fourth Sunday, I was a junior usher and I took my job very seriously. Now we had a couple of uh, requirements and things to do every single Sunday. One, during the offering time, we had to give people change. So there'd be some dude with like eight gold rings on his fingers and he would give you a $10 bill and ask for $8 change. And I would try my best to not judge anybody. Uh, two, we would make sure nobody was chewing gum. You're not gonna be chewing uh, any Wrigley's in the Lord's house. And uh, three, and this was by far the most important thing that we had to do, we had to guard the door to make sure that nobody came in before the choir came in and marched. And every single Sunday, a choir would march in to we have come this far by faith. And I would stand there with my white gloves on, y'all don't know nothing about them white gloves, uh, white gloves on to make sure that nobody tried to enter into the church because when the choir marched in, worship was about to begin. Now, unintentionally, uh, growing up, that taught me some things about this concept of worship. Specifically, that worship was something that you did on Sundays from 11 to 1, sometimes 1.30 if the pastor got a little long-winded. Now, to this day, sometimes I still tend to think about worship in that light, that it's something that I do on any given day of the week. Now, to be very clear, there is something powerful about gathering together with other uh, people who wanna follow Jesus, to gather together, to sing songs, to hear a sermon, and to be together. And y'all, I miss that so terribly. And when it is safe, yeah, we're gonna come together and it is gonna be absolutely turned. But worship is bigger than a couple of hours a week. As a matter of fact, when scripture talks about worship, it doesn't talk about it in the sense of something that you do for a couple of hours, but it talks about something that you are giving your life to. Now, I wanna read a scripture from a man named Paul that broadens our understanding of what worship is. And it's much bigger than what we do on a given day of the week. And it's found uh, in Romans 12 and one. And here's what Paul says. And Paul was an early follower of Jesus. And here's what he tells us about what worship is. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. 
So what Paul is saying is that worship is not just Sunday from 11 to 1. Worship involves every minute of every day. And here is Paul's definition of worship. Worship is much bigger than a style of song. It's much different than just getting emotional when something is played. Worship is you presenting yourself to God as a living sacrifice. Now, worship is honor and adoration to the point that you build your life around it. What people were giving their lives to, that's what they worship. I remember uh, when I was in North Carolina in law school, I got a car that I loved and uh, you know, I got some rims so I had to keep it clean. And every single Saturday, I would take out my bucket of all my wash supplies and I would wash that car and I had a system. I would wash it, I would detail it, I would vacuum it out. And then the rims, like there was this one spot in the rims that you couldn't get with a sponge. So I got Q-tips to make sure that I can get every single crevice of that car. And it was absolutely spotless. And I wouldn't drive it in the rain really because I didn't want to get it messed up. Uh, I would park as far away from people when I would go to Target or something as possible because I didn't want anybody hitting uh, my car door with theirs. And essentially I changed the way I was living just because of this car. And one day, my brother came up to me uh, after I washed the car. I spent like an hour and a half washing it. And he said, yo, you, you, you worship that car. Now, he was kind of right. In a sense, I wasn't kneeling next to the car saying, singing, how great thou art to the car. That's not what I was doing. But I was orienting my life around that car. Now, if we just stopped there for a second and thought about what I was doing with that car and applied that to my life, as a definition of worship, there's a couple of things that I think would just be very humbling to me that stick out. One, I was making my life really inconvenient just to have this car and to keep it as clean as it was. And the question is, am I willing and are you willing to be inconvenienced by God? Are you just going to fit God into the slot that just kind of works? And if you can manage the other things which are more important, then you'll put God in on the back end, or are you willing to be inconvenienced by God? Two, do you, do you give Jesus adequate time to nurture a relationship with him? And three, here's a big one, are you proud about Jesus the same way I was proud about my car to show him off in your daily life? Is it something that comes out of you that you'll talk about with pride and, and happily, not begrudgingly to try to Jesus juke someone, but do you talk about Jesus pridefully in the same way that I would talk about my car and want to show that off. Now, when we think about this concept of worship, again, it's not just a couple of hours on a weekend. It is the what we orient our life around, what we are building our lives around. I would do all of those things against uh, all of those things for my car. So check this out. All throughout the Bible, it warns about this concept of idolatry. And a lot of us hear that word idolatry and we think about what people did 3,000 years ago when they would kneel down in front of a statue. But idolatry is much bigger than that and much more dangerous and subtle than that. Idolatry is you orienting your life around something that is other than God. For some people, it's money. And they build their entire lives around money. Now, money is a good thing. We all need it. Uh, I'm not one of those people that thinks money is a bad thing. But if you build your life around it, Money cannot bear the, the, your identity. Money cannot bear the weight of your life and, and your soul. It is not meant to be something you build your life around. So scripture warns over and over again about uh, idolatry. 
And uh, there's an African theologian by the name of St. Augustine who lived uh, many years ago. And here's what he says about idolatry and about orienting our lives around God and the danger that is in front of us. And he says it like this. He says, it's not that we're loving the wrong things, but rather we love the right things in the wrong order. So essentially, it's that we love something in first place that really should be in third place. And I want the scripture to, to recenter us and to refocus us on what it is that God requires from us. Even though we are separated from each other, it does not stop us from worshiping, i.e. orienting our life around God in a meaningful way, presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. So Paul urges us, he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, what is Paul talking about in this concept of a living sacrifice? Paul is using temple language. Now, Paul was a Jewish man, and a lot of these letters that we find in the Bible were written to Jewish people who placed their faith in Christ the Messiah. So when he says this concept of a living sacrifice, it's a little strange to us, but it would have made perfect sense to his audience. And one of the biggest questions whenever you read the Bible is not just what does it say, but rather what would the original audience have understood it when it was said to them. So what would the original audience have understood this to mean? They would have understood this to be uh, a part of the temple sacrifices. And there were a number of temple sacrifices that people would offer to the temple. Uh, there were two kinds that I wanna highlight right now. The first was a sin offering. And a sin offering is just what it says. It's an offering made to pay for the sins that you have committed. So if you have done something wrong, people would come to the temple to give an offering to express their contrition and say they, how sorry they were so that they could be brought into right standing with God. But this is not a sin offering that Paul is saying. So he's, when he tells us to present our body as a living sacrifice, he's not saying do that so that God would receive you. And we know that this is what Paul is talking about because he says, in view of God's mercy. Paul is talking about Jesus, who was our sin offering. And what Paul is talking about here is not a sin offering, but a burnt offering, which was an offering of gratitude. So first, uh, Paul says, in view of God's mercy, and I don't want us to miss this, uh, mercy is something that you and I have to receive as a gift. What is, what is mercy? Tim Keller says it like this. Mercy and forgiveness must be free and unmerited to the wrongdoer. If the wrongdoer has to do something to merit it or to earn it, then it isn't mercy. But forgiveness always comes at a cost to the one granting the forgiveness. So Paul is grounding us here in the gospel and saying that the mercy that we have received, it's free to us, but it was costly to God. And that's the way forgiveness works in anything if you owed me $100 and I forgive you, if I'm merciful to forgive you, I might have let you off the hook, but that $100 does not magically reappear in my bank account. I am out of $100. And what Paul is saying, in view of God's mercy for us, and basically what Paul is saying here in the scripture is, in view of Jesus on the cross on our behalf, you and I should live our lives in gratitude and orient our life around Jesus with, with this gratitude and this uh, posture of worship. And this is what Paul is talking about in his text. And now mercy is a concept that it's pretty easy to understand for other people, but it's difficult to apply it to our lives. Most of us, and especially if you're new, 
a lot of people struggle to feel that you need mercy, right? Mostly because we compare ourselves to other people and we think we're doing a better job than they are. So we just don't feel like we actually truly need mercy from God. Uh, when I became a Christian my sophomore year in college, I remember being confronted with the reality of my need for mercy. Freshman year, I had, let's just say I had a very fun time, and it was the first time in my life where I had no accountability whatsoever, and I took it and I ran with it. Uh, through a very fortunate set of events, I found myself at a Bible study uh, sophomore year, and I'll never forget reading these words where it became crystal clear to me that I needed God's mercy. Uh, it comes to us in Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. And here's what it says. It says, for the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as a separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And here's what it said that brought me to the point where I, I realized I needed God's mercy and it says this, no creature, no, no creature, me and you, nothing is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. When I read that scripture, uh, I, I realized that I had to give God account. I had to give God an account for everything that I had done. Now, what if that's, what if that's true, y'all, right? Think about that. What if that's true? Not just some things, but if everything that you and I do, we're gonna to have to give an account for that. Do you feel like you can stand on your own two feet and say, no, I don't need any mercy, I'm good. God, uh, you can judge me, um, you know, only God can judge me and God is gonna judge me to be in the right way, not me. I'll take, I'll take the mercy. And what Paul is basically saying is this, you and I do not deserve anything good from God, but God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have ever everlasting life. Now, if you don't know where you stand in your relationship with God, and maybe you've never made a, a commitment to request and to go before God and say, God, I, I need your mercy. I know I can't stand on my own too. Then please do me a favor, fill out a connection card. There's a link below. One of our pastors would love to speak to you about what it means to receive God's mercy personally, because we all need it. So Paul, um, He's talking about God's mercy, and this is not just for, for people who are newer to, the, to Christianity or their walk with God. Man, I, I want to make sure that we bring this back into view. So Paul uses some pretty interesting language here. He says, in, in view of God's mercy, and there's a lot of people who once upon a time, you put your faith in Christ to follow Jesus, and you walked in the aisle, and you might have gotten baptized, and you might have joined the church, but God's mercy is not in view in your life. You live in constant fear of God. You live in judgment of yourself and in judgment of others because you have not yet received and are not uh, receiving God's mercy for your life. So when you pray, you're praying over and over again for God to just hopefully forgive you. And you almost feel like you're bothering God just by, by praying. And you haven't yet for, uh, received God's mercy. So Paul says, in view of God's mercy, let's bring this back to the center screen. And I wanna read a couple of scriptures that will hopefully bring God's mercy in view to us so that it would lead us to a place where we would worship and want to respond with gratitude. And here's what uh, one scripture says in Lamentations. It says, through the Lord's mercies, 
we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. God's mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. In Micah, it says, who was, who was a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depth of the sea. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, it says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So Paul is saying, in view of God's mercies, the reasonable response to that of God, is, God and his mercy for us is for you and I to present our life to God as a living sacrifice. And Paul is talking about this as a burnt offering. Now, this is what a burnt offering is. A burnt offering was not something that people had to do. It was someone taking the choicest animal that they had, their very best, and bringing it to God in the temple. So it was not something that they had to do to repay something for sin. This was something that they would do to express their gratitude. And essentially what they were saying is, everything that I have, Lord, is yours with no reservations. It was an expression of their passion and their devotion to God. It was an expression of their gratitude. Based on what God has done for them, they wanted to give their very best to God. And this is what Paul is saying. Worship is, God, in view of your mercies, I want to give you my very best, my very best time, my very best energy. All of me is yours without reservation. Now, and all of this is based off of God's mercy. Now, I saw firsthand how this principle works. And here's the principle. In view of what has been done for you, God's mercy, it only makes sense that we would live a life of sacrifice and service. In view of God's mercy for us, it only makes sense that you and I live with a sense of gratitude, sacrifice, and service, or as Paul says in Romans 12, that we present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Uh, growing up, uh, my dad grew up in the east side of Buffalo, and uh, he grew up very poor, and he's told so many stories about um, just how rough he had it, and uh, he told one story where um, he talked about being in middle school and only having two pairs of pants and two shirts. And his mother would work really hard to keep everything clean. And she literally um, would put food on the table by cleaning up people's homes on her hands and knees, all with the hope that one day, this little poor black boy from Buffalo could be something one day. And my grandmother was a, a very proud woman. She raised my father to love Jesus and to work hard. And by the grace of God and a lot of prayers for my grandmother, that little boy from Buffalo with two pairs of pants and two shirts uh, went on to college and to law school and to start his own law firm, um, uh, built on the sacrifices that were given for him. Now, what kind of son would he have been that if his entire life he received so much love and work from my grandmother only to forget her once he got to the top? Uh, what kind of son would he be if he did not live a life of gratitude and service for the sacrifices that were given to him? Now, fortunately, my father absolutely did not do that. 
He loved my grandmother until her very last breath. He did any and everything he could do for her. He took care of her. Uh, and you know, my grandmother was dearly loved. And he lived a life with this knowledge of all of the sacrifices that were made for him. Those sacrifices compelled him for him to live a life sacrificing for her in honor and in reverence and in gratitude and in service of all the things that she had done for him. Now, in view of God's mercies, if it is true that God himself came down in the person of Jesus and went to the cross to take the penalty for all of our sins, wouldn't it make sense that the only reasonable response for a life given for us would be a life of gratitude and service and giving ourselves as a living sacrifice for the one who gave us uh, everything, who gave up his life for us. Now, this is what Paul is talking about. In view of God's mercies, in view of what God has done for us in Jesus on the cross, the only reasonable thing, the only reasonable response is for us to live a life with this gratitude and to live as living sacrifices. That we would say, God, based on what you have done, I'm gonna give you my best, my time, my energy, without reservation, because you deserve it. Now, Paul is giving us this, this urge that if we really did understand this gospel message, if we really did understand God's mercy for us, it really would push us to live with this sense of obligation and gratitude that we would give our very best to God without reservation. But I live in the real world. I live in the world of uh, a pandemic, online kindergarten, which is exactly as fun as it sounds, uh, bills, health scares, all the things that dominate our attention. And there's a lot of things that get in the way of us really living and embodying this text that we are giving ourselves and we're living as uh, living sacrifices for God. And the biggest reason is just distraction. Distraction is this, it's to prevent someone from giving full attention to something. And we're just distracted. And distraction causes us to miss a lot of stuff, sometimes good and sometimes bad. A few years ago, I was driving with some family members and we drove past this sunset in Virginia that was one of the most beautiful sunsets I've ever seen. It looked like Trix yogurt in the sky, just all of these sherbet colors. Uh, and it was absolutely gorgeous. And everybody in the, in the car was on their phone, checking Instagram or checking whatever they were checking. And I was like, yo, look, look, look. And everybody was like, what? And they were like still looking down at their phones and they missed it. They missed this gorgeous sunset because they were checking the score in the game or something like that. Distraction causes us to miss sometimes really beautiful things. But sometimes it causes us to not just miss beautiful things. It makes us miss things that are dangerous, but they're right in front of our face. When I was a senior in college, uh, not the car that I loved that I washed so much. I had a car and I was driving it around and uh, I was driving on one of these roads that I had been down a hundred times in my life and I was distracted. I was trying to text somebody and I ended up totaling my car and by the grace of God, I left out without a scratch. The only thing that was damaged was my pride. Now, there was a car that had just been sitting there. It didn't just jump out in front of me. The only reason I didn't see it because I was distracted. Distraction causes us to miss stuff. Whether it is a beautiful sunset or a dangerous condition, distraction just takes our eyes off of what we should be paying attention to. Same thing is true. Whether it is a beautiful truth about God and scripture and a relationship with him or a danger that sits right in front of us, 
If we're distracted, we're gonna miss it. Now, I do wanna be very clear. There are some things that we have in front of us now that are just obligations, right? So uh, any day in my house is very difficult. We have a lot of work and school and kids and, and trying to keep up with family and friends and just trying to stay healthy in this pandemic. It's very difficult and there's a lot of obligations that also take our time. And I'm not calling for anybody to be a monk and to move away from the city and go to a monastery somewhere and just isolate yourself. But I, I do think it would be very wise if we paid attention to how we are living our lives to evaluate whether or not we are actually distracted or we're giving God our attention. It's impossible for us to live as a living sacrifice unless we are actually paying attention to what we're doing. So uh, there's a couple of reasons that I think we're distracted. Uh, one is that we just are on our phones too much and I'm an elder, elder millennial and I know that so many of us millennials and Gen Zs uh, behind us, I mean, the phones just dominate so much of our time and our attention. And I'll read this quote um, from a pastor. Uh, it's gonna come right for your neck. And I would say it to you, but I'll just read his quote and let, you, let him offend you. He says this, one of the great uses of social media and all the apps that take our time will be to prove at the last day that your prayerlessness was not from a lack of time. You can say ouch and amen. The reason we're prayerless, the reason we're not availing ourselves to God in scripture is we have the time, right? Like if you checked your screen time notification, you realize that you do have the time. We just don't prioritize it. Another challenge is we've bought into this really dangerous lie that we can multitask. We can do 17 things all at once, and that's just a really dangerous approach to understanding life. And we'll never live a life of reverence and, and, and focus that God requires us to live if we think that we can do multiple things at once. Greg McCown in his book, Essentialism, he says it like this. Uh, the word priority came into the English language in the 1400s. It was singular. It meant the very first or prior thing. It stayed singular for the next 500 years. Only in the 1900s did we pluralize the term and start talking about priorities. Illogically, we reasoned that by changing the word, we can bend reality. Somehow, we would now be able to have multiple first things. People and companies routinely try to do just that. This gives the impression of many things being the pri priority, but in actuality, nothing is. We're often distracted from our true priority because we think we can focus on a lot of things and that's just not, this is not true. Now, the last reason I think we're really distracted is uh, this one requires that you uh, trust me a little bit, particularly if you're new to faith and you're new to Christianity. It's that we have an active enemy that does not want you to pay attention to God. We have an opposition. In 1 Peter 5 and 8, it says it like this, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. So we have an enemy whose active purpose it is to distract us. And sometimes if the devil can't make you bad, he will make you busy. There are spiritual forces aligned to take your attention and your focus off of God and put it on anything else. And the remedy, Paul says, is I urge you in view of the mercies of God to present yourself as a living sacrifice. And I think we do that in a, in a couple of ways. Uh, the first thing I want us to do this week 
is to evaluate. I want us to evaluate the way we've been spending our time, the way the things we've been talking about, to evaluate our life and take a good, hard look in the mirror and see, Lord, have I been living as a living sacrifice? Have I been putting you first? Have I been loving you first place in my life? Have I been proud about you? Has, have I spent time nurturing a relationship with you? And a lot of times we don't want to know the answer to that. And sometimes the answer is no. Many times the answer is no. And, you know, I get it. Sometimes we don't even want to take a look at the hard things about us. It's like when I was in college and I didn't even want to check my ATM balance on my card. I was just very happy to go and swipe it. And if, the, if it went through, then praise the Lord. And if not, I would very humbly take my card and go back and beg my parents to put some more money on my account. So for some of you, if you spent time looking at your calendar this week, looking at your screen time for your phone, it might show you some alarming things. But in order for us to get free, y'all, to really get free, it might make us uncomfortable first. I heard the quote that said, the truth will make us free, but it might make, it might make you uncomfortable in the process. So the first thing I want us to do is to evaluate how we have been spending our time and our energy to ascertain and to see whether or not um, we have lived with the requisite focus that is required for us to live as living sacrifices. And number two, we have to plan for it, right? So we plan for everything that is important to us. For me, I plan for almost everything that is important to me. I don't let the things that are really important just happen. I was talking to uh, some new renaissancers who've just joined us during the pandemic and shout out to y'all, everybody who's new to us. And if I haven't met you yet, I can't wait to meet you in person. And they were asking me about sneakers and like, yo, Jay, I see that you actually have a decent sneaker collection. And you know, how do you go about all these things? And I said, well, I have a crazy system. I have like 19 devices. I steal my kids' iPads when it's time for a sneaker drop. I'll call family members and ask them to put in uh, the request for the sneakers, and I have a plan for it. Why? Illogically, it is very important to me. And everything that I have that's important to me, I have a plan for. You are not going to stumble into making your life a living sacrifice to God. You're going to have to plan for it with your time, your energy, uh, and how you are living your life. So plan for it. Plan your time. Be more intentional about limits on your phone. Be more intentional about expending your energy in other places so that we can truly put God at the center of our life. Again, the essence of sin is not that we are loving the wrong things, but we are loving the right things in the wrong order. And Paul is urging us to put God back in first place. The third thing I want us to do this week is to invite other people into our lives to help push us, keep us accountable, sharpen us, uh, and because we were never intended to go about this thing alone. Hebrews 10 says it like this, and let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit doing, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day approaching. There is a communal aspect of you orienting your life around Jesus. It's not just gonna happen because you've read more or you know more information or you've watched more sermons. You and I need other people to help refine us and push us and keep God's mercy in front of us. So this week, I want you to evaluate, I want you to plan, and I want you to invite other people into your journey. And for a lot of you who are getting ready to start DNA groups, if you haven't uh, already um, gotten an email to confirm that it's going to be coming out this week, please make sure that you confirm that and make your attendance at these sessions a priority in your life. 
so that we can live as Paul urges us to do. Let me pray for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, I'm so grateful for your mercy that I am not consumed. You are not angry. Uh, you love me and you accept me so we can come to your throne, as it says in Hebrews, with boldness, wherein we can receive mercy. So Lord, I'm so grateful for your mercy for me. And in response to that, Lord, I, I wanna give you the best of me. Help me to not be distracted. Help me to love you more fully. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.